what really gets my dick hard is Welcome to the Middle Up Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. And we're at episode 51. We made our 50 episode mile marker, and now we're in, in into the next 50. Yeah, what a long, strange trip it's been. Or next been. 200, who knows. Speaking of it being strange, we're at HQ2 today. Yeah, this is the first time we've recorded anything over at uh, Clint's studio. It's always at my house, so. It feels new and exciting. The sun is up. I definitely feel like a vampire, like I'm, my skin's going to burn off or something. Yeah, there's a bit more light in my studio. <laughs> there is. I keep mine pretty dark. Um, we're here today because we got to interview uh, Michael Wagner. Yeah, we, we uh, as we're recording this part, we just got back from his home studio, which I wouldn't call it a home studio. It's like... No, it's a legit studio. It's one of the more badass studios I've walked into in Nashville. It's, it's in like a separate sort of annex from his house, yeah. which is why... Maybe and the address, if you guys want to t- check it out, it's <laughs> <laughs> his social security number happens to be... Um, but yeah, we just got back from talking to Michael and, you know, we were excited to do it he he seemed a little maybe nervous like he didn't really know what we were all about but once we once we started rolling he was mr chatty mcchatterson yeah and i can't say i blame him to just two two dudes who look like me and you two strangers rolling up in his space uh hey man uh we just want to like be on our podcast uh, remember master puppets wasn't that cool you remember metallica we could have totally been like all right here are our questions was it cool to work with metallica yeah question number two wasn't it cool to mix Master of Puppets? <laughs> Question number three. How cool is James Hetfield? Question number four. Does Lars really talk a lot? <laughs> we actually... What if that was the actual interview? Oh, he great. would have kicked us out of a studio so fast. It ended up being a really wonderful hour-long conversation. And we got, we got to hear about not only uh, Michael's work mixing Master of Puppets, but also his amazing career... The oh dude, yeah, the dude. The dudes combined as a as an engineer, mixer, and a producer has sold over a hundred million records. Just a few, yeah. So yeah, and uh, I would encourage everyone listening after this episode's done because you know we come first. Um, look up his discography. Look up all the things he's been a part of. I mean, some really big records, whether it's a mixer or a producer, right? And you're gonna you know you're gonna hear us talk a lot about the the more notable records too. Before yeah. that, let's go ahead and just jump into the household stuff. We did our contest last week. We did. We're still waiting for the uh, winners to claim their prizes. A couple. One of them already has, so we'll see as the days unfold. Uh, if you don't know what that is, uh, Ethan and I have decided that every month we're going to give away five prizes. Uh, and th- this month, uh, actually last month, November, we gave away the Master Puppets Deluxe box set. We did. This month for December, we're giving away uh, the Ride the Lightning box set and yep. a bunch of Ride the Lightning uh, swag, a blanket and coffee mugs. The way to do it is you should go leave us a positive review on iTunes. Your name goes into a drawing. We draw five names. If you left us a review last month or 10 months ago, you're in the running. Yeah, you're eligible. So we would appreciate if you go do it. We're trying to give you some incentive. Um, if you don't want to do it, no sweat. You don't have to. No one's forcing you. No one's forcing you to. No. But do it. But go ahead and do it. Yeah, you really should. This is the subliminal message portion of the yeah, show. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about patrons because that's kind of how this is possible. Yeah, exactly. All, all the things that we have purchased for giveaways are only available, uh, or I'm sorry, are only possible because of our patrons. And if you go to patreon.com slash podcast, you can see what that's all about, how to donate to the show, how to get a hold of me and Clint's upcoming covers EP of Metallica songs. Which is being mixed right now. Currently being mixed. Um, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff on there. There's different tiers you can you can uh, pledge to or donate to. And uh, again, we're giving that back to the listeners. So all the things like the Middle Up Your Podcast, or the, I'm sorry, the Master of Puppets box set, that was purchased because of the generous donations of our patrons. It's really cool. It's just a way for them, for people to sort of be a part of this machine. Yeah, exactly. And get involved, you know? Yeah, and, and there's other costs involved in, in running the podcast, which we use that for it as well. But uh, it's all going back into the podcast no matter what. Yeah, it's cool. So go check that out. It's patreon.com, Patreon slash Metal Up Your Podcast. Come hang out with us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Ethan and I interact all day 
through that stuff with you guys. Uh, the best way to get a hold of us is through email. Our email address is metalupyourpodcastshow at gmail.com. We read a couple per episode, and with no yep. further ado-do, let's get into the week's emails. The emails. All right. Our first email is from Tim Rasmussen. We heard from him last week. We did hear from him last week. He said, uh, hi, Clint, Ethan, and Paul. Great, epi- great episode again, gents. Been looking forward to your revisit of Hardwired. Now that it's been absorbed by many, uh, many listens, uh, it has really stood up and shine as their best record since the Black Album, in my opinion. Strong. Very strong. Strong opinion. It would be cool to hear you guys talk about the reissues and the deluxe box sets in future episodes. And I really look forward to an episode on Live Shit, Binge, and Purge. It's in my top five, even though it's a live record. Adios. Cool. Very cool. I, that's, I mean, live shit, it's a, it's a great collection. I mean, those Oh, two, we're definitely going to do that. Oh, yeah. That might, may even be a multi-episode deal because it's multiple shows. For a lot of us, that's the, you know, the first real time we got to see them live. And yeah. It came in that cool road case. And I've it's, got it, yeah. and, and it definitely represents a live peak of... It's kind of the live peak of the 80s. It is, yeah. That 89 yeah. Seattle show, yeah. the Mexico City show. Black Album. Yeah, we just got to find a VCR so we can watch the ones in my box. Uh, yeah, or we can make one out of scrap scrap metal. And <laughs> yeah, we can go to the scrapyards and piece together one. <laughs> and in terms of the box sets, you know, Ethan and I don't. Although we've now bought two of them to give away to fans, we don't ourselves have one. So maybe we'll get one soon, or maybe we can borrow a friend's and sort of dig yeah. into it and do an episode on it. That'd be really fun. Maybe we can borrow Michael Wagner's. <laughs> go back to the studio, um, Ma- Michael. If you're listening, we're, we'll be back over there shortly can to we pick up that, that box set. <laughs> uh, thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Jason Wood writes, "Hey guys, just discovered the podcast a couple weeks ago. Amazing stuff. I'm going in. Uh, I'm going in order and just got done with the year and a half part one episode. Love the Bob Rock comments. Ever notice on the 30th anniversary shows that even though he wears a black shirt, it still looks like a dress? Ha ha ha! Keep up the good work. I love this shit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he kind of he kind of likes flowy shirts. He kind of likes a muumuu vibe. Yeah, I wish he would just wear a muumuu, <laughs> like a paisley muumuu. Yeah, paisley, not not black." I mean, you saw some of the colors he was wearing. In the- oh yeah, he likes to get he likes to get tropical. Oh, I'll quote Nathan Lane's character from the Bird Birdcage: "One must have a hint of color." <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, when you've got that fanny pack rocking and that white turtleneck, yeah, where else are you gonna put your chapstick? Rocking that ponytail with a baseball cap on, <laughs> just straight up '90s dad. Yeah, '90s dadding it. I'd like to see Bob rocking and maybe a poncho. Yeah, nice poncho. Yeah, he could rock a poncho. Yeah, maybe a nice North Face jacket. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Our next email is from Nicole Williams. Hey guys, I've been listening to the uh, Truth and Justice podcast, which is currently investigating the West, West Memphis Three case. Apparently, John Mark, John Mark Byers, Christopher's dad, told uh, uh, told them that the filmmakers had supplied him with the weed and alcohol that resulted in some questionable behavior uh, being ca- uh, captured in the Paradise Lost documentary. Assuming that's true, of course, that got me thinking about how uh, how that indirect manipulation could have effect on some kind of monster. I don't think that Joe and Bruce uh, have tried that with James, Lars, and Kirk, but I feel that Phil definitely could have been uh, susceptible to a little puppet mastery. Mm-hmm, nice. Master! Master! Uh, she goes on to say, I think this is to Joe and Bruce, Psst. hey, Phil, looks like they're struggling with lyrics. You got any ideas? <laughs> I mean, I could see that being the case. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but some might argue that the puppet master involved in that whole mess was Phil. I I, I could potentially argue that. You I know, could, I could stand on that side of the fence. I mean, they you know they accept a lot of his challenges and things he recommends to do and this and that you know and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it 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 ended up uh, affecting sonically what was going on right like that. i think that i think their mind was already made up on what it was but do sound you think like. that joe and bruce the filmmakers of some kind of monster do you think that similar to the story about the in the in the paradise lost stuff uh do you think they maybe meddled or maybe created drama created some friction for the maybe. for the film i mean they could have but there's not a lot you know there's not a lot of like one-on-one interview stuff and that's just them as a, a, a unit right I don't know. I can't imagine them like knowing that like Hetfield's already uncomfortable with the cameras being there and things yeah. like that. That they would have pulled anyone aside and be like, "Hey, man, uh, you know Kirk said this the other day. You want to yeah. talk about Kirk it? Kirk said you're a butthead." Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I would tend to believe maybe they didn't do that. Hey, you know what? You know what Lars said the other day. He said that uh, he said that the mummy sucks. 
Yeah, and you know what James said? He said that uh, Toyotas are for pussies. <laughs> James said that? I can't believe it. He said that? Uh, it's an interesting theory, Nicole. I do thank you for uh, bringing it to our attention. Danny Derryberry. Danny Derryberry. Listen to this while doing some repairs. Oh, you, the subject of this email was funny. It was it was uh, Fiddleman on the Roof. Fiddleman on the Roof. He's yeah. referring to our Greg Fiddleman episode. Listen to this while doing some roof repairs on my house. I'm so clever. Anyways, really dug the info from Paul Moak, having been looking to dial in that sound since I began playing. Uh, since I began playing about with the mics being used to achieve that was really cool uh geek out on gear as much as you want i love that shit horns up bitches horns up, bitches i'm glad that the people like to talk about gear you know mm-hmm. we're, gonna, we're coming up here when in our interview with michael wagner we we do kind of camp out in some pretty nerdy gear talk yeah we talk about some good gear stuff you guys are about to hear that after one more email i really can't overstate how impressive michael's studio was very impressive racks I mean, and racks and racks of really dope outboard gear he oh, had yeah. a great ssl board his rooms were very vibey uh, and comfortable a fucking master puppets esp he had a master puppet it was an ltd uh, ltd yeah we'll post um, a picture of that on instagram at some point here he had he you know he had all these great kemper amps he had modeled all these great amp heads i think he didn't he say he had like 13 or eighteen thousand different amp models in yeah there? it's insane the guy's definitely committed and and loves his craft. And he cares a lot. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, we talked about it in the interview, and he, he cares a lot about doing things right. Yeah. Committing them, you know, committing them to the recording project yeah. correctly, yeah. not trying to fix a bunch of shit. I, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing what everyone thinks about the interview with yeah. Michael. All right, our last email. It is from Adam. How do we say this one Schoberg. again? Schoberg. Schoberg. Um, From Sweden. Sweden. He says, what up, guys? Uh, Adam from Skovde, writing in again. Just wondering if you guys could give a shout out to my best friend, Alexander Anderson. Uh, he's, he's, he's the one who showed me this podcast, and I have a lot to thank him for. Uh, he was the one that played me Metallica for the very first time. We actually started our first band together, and we did, uh, and we, and all we did was play Metallica songs. That's all I wanted to say, metal up your ass. Well, shout out to Alexander Anderson. Alexander not only for turning uh, Adam here onto our show, but definitely for playing him his first Metallica song. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And to, you know, to those of you out there, we talk about iTunes reviews and ways to help the show grow and on p- patrons and all that. A really simple way to help us is to just tell your friends who like Metallica yeah. about our show. And what we're sort of discovering is that many people don't quite know what a podcast is. We'd, we've seen this firsthand when we went to the Detroit So show. maybe explain to them how easy it is that it's free. It's like a radio show in your phone yeah. that you can listen to, stream it, or download at any time. It's just a real easy way to grow the community of Metallica yeah, it nerds. Is. And, you know, I think the radio show comparison is the best way to usually tell people what it is. Um, I mean, it's free. Tell it's your friends. Free. You want to listen to some free Metallica content? Easy. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Like... It's fucking free, man. Why don't you just take it? <laughs> All right, and that concludes the emails. Uh, all right, so with no further ado, let's just go ahead and get into the interview with Michael. Let's get right into it. I want, I'm really excited for people to hear this. So this is our very first in-person interview for Metal Up Your Podcast with Michael Wagner, mixer of Master of Puppets and so many other great things. You all enjoy it. All right, we're here with Michael Wagner at his studio in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Hello, beautiful. Michael. Hello, Michael. Hello. Beautiful studio, by the way. No one listening can see it, but there's we're surrounded by guitars, outboard gear, so many beautiful, beautiful instruments, and uh, yeah, we can't thank you enough for letting us uh, invade your space for a little bit. Sure. So for those of you who don't know, which if you don't know, you're insane if yes. you're listening to the show, uh, Michael is a world-renowned producer, mixer, and engineer with album sales of over 94 million worldwide. By now, we're close to 100 million. There we go. There you go. You heard it from that's the a, source. That's a few records. A couple, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's the president of Double Trouble Productions, runs Wire World Studios, which is where we are, high-end facility in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm going to sort of just list through sort of a selected discography of the work you've done to sort of contextualize the conversation. Michael's produced uh, Dockin' Records, Breaking the Chains, Under Lock and Key, Extreme, Pornography, 
uh, Great White Self-Titled, King's X, Overtones, Raven, All for One, classic metal mm-hmm. record, uh, Skid Row, Self-Titled, and Slave to the Grind, Striper, Soldiers Under Command, Warrant, Dog Eat Dog, White Line, Pride, and Big Game. And that's just as a producer. As a mixer, he's mixed Except, Balls of the Wall, Alice Cooper, Raise Your Fist and Yell, Dockin' Tooth and Nail, Megadeth, So Far, So Good, So What, Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love, Ozzy Osbourne, No More Tears, uh, Testament Low, and of course, the reason we're here today, Metallica, Master of yes, Puppets. Yes, correct. I mean, I know that your your discography goes well beyond that, but we want to get you know our, our fans to hear some of the highlights that you've done. Take up a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah, we just do an episode it. just on you reading your discography. Well, my question for you, after sort of listing all those, I mean, some of the most legendary, influential rock records of all time. How does it feel hearing sort of that list that way? Do you? How does it feel to be a part of such important records? It's that's just my life, you know. I'm I'm in it every day, mm-hmm. you know. I I, I uh, to me this is just the normal thing, right? Yeah, it's just what you, you know? do. And and we're still, you know, Skid Row. Rachel lives here. The Winger guys live here. Yeah. And, you know, everybody lives here now, so we're still good friends and see each right. other yeah. fairly often. Do you ever go back and listen to any of these records? Um, I have to once in a while, yeah. Once in a while, because I got them all in the car. Yeah. yeah. So when I'm driving, I listen to them. Um, I have to say, outside of this, I don't listen to a lot of music. Right. Right. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to mess up my mind. What's What's going on? And and and, you know, uh, I'm totally not in agreement with what's going on in the '90s musically. So uh, I don't listen to a lot of outside music. Yeah. Right. And especially if I'm in a project, which I'm pretty much always are. Yeah. So then I'm, you know, staying away. But yeah, once in a while I listen to to the old stuff, and I go, that was a lot of reverb on that Well, right. And as we were saying before we were rolling, like you're still extremely active. You said you're booked through May, so you've you've got stuff now, going on yeah, all the time. There's, there's more coming. Yeah. It's great, and what and uh, what a great place to have, like right behind your house. You know, yeah. you're not having to go all the way in, into into downtown Nashville or down right. to Music Row or something. You can just walk out in the backyard and right. get right to work. Traffic is horrible going out here once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The traffic from the house to the studio is 150 feet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do you find the sort of work life balance having your studio so close to where you live? Is there do you have to put some boundaries I love on? It. I actually yeah. love it. You know, yeah. uh, we used to we used to hire studios uh, for a lot of money which brought the uh, budgets way up on, on those records, and those budgets are just not there anymore. Yeah. Right. So I'm glad I, I, in time, built my studio in order to uh, have a place to work, you right. know? And, and uh, uh, I, I like it. I can go home, see my wife and my animals for yeah. lunch, and, you know, they can come over here. It's, it's, it's great, but the studio is still not connected to the house, right. so it's yeah. still a place of business, you know? Besides the house. And if your wife kicks you out, you can come sleep in here. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Plenty of places to sleep in the yeah. studio. <laughs> so can we talk just a little bit about how you got into sure. your job? You, you, um, you're from Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, your first real gig was you played guitar for Accept. Is that right? Actually, um, I wouldn't call it that way. I grew up with Udo Dirk Schneider, the singer for Accept, or the ex-singer for Accept. We went, uh, we went together since we were six years old. We went to school oh, wow. together and, you know, we spent our whole youth together and, and went through musical experiences together and so on. And at some point we opened up a band with a few other people called Band X mm. because we couldn't come up with a name. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, you know, um, that went on for a while. It was just like getting your feet wet, being in a band. We didn't play. I think we played one gig. Mm. And uh, at the point when I um, we found the name Udo and I Udo and I we found the name except for it. Uh, and that point I got drafted to okay. the army, so I had to leave my hometown. It was like 350 miles away, so you can't practice anymore, and and so on, so on. So Udo uh, kept going because uh, he was a year younger than me and he kept going and he found Wolf and, and uh, Peter and everybody joined the band And but it was already called Except When These Guys Joined Okay. so uh, I never played one gig with Except <laughs> you know you were in the band and never played a show right and then and then uh, they started doing records, and from the third record on, I did a lot of records with them. Yeah. You know, I mixed, um, actually engineered and mixed uh, Breaker. Okay. Then 
co-produced uh, Restless and Wild, mm -hmm. and then mixed Balls of the Wall, produced uh, Russian Roulette, and later on produced Predator. Yeah. So you were so, still you were still a part of the family of except for a long time, oh, yeah, even though yeah, you never yeah. played. We, we, and you're still friends with them to this day. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's great. Do you do you think that if you hadn't have been drafted that you would have still stuck with it and been a guitar player in that band? Um I'm not that good of a guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, you know, Wolf is like a hundred times better than I always sure. was, you know. So uh, and and he contributed a lot more than I ever could. Right. Uh, so I don't know how it would have gone if I would have been in the band and not him. And yeah. you know, so and you know, once once I got drafted, I tried to do another band, but it didn't really work out. So. I decided to move. Actually, after the army, I went to a company building uh, stage equipment, amplifiers, and and stuff like that. And in the end, we started building studio consoles. Oh, okay. And set up a few studios, and and we had our own studio where we could demonstrate the equipment. And working in that studio, I find out that. Working with the stuff is a lot nicer than building it. Sure, yeah. Mm. You know, and then I decided to have my own studio uh, with a few other guys in Germany. Hamburg was called Tennessee Studios. Tennessee Studios? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because the name of the band that basically had the money to build the studio was Tennessee. And oh, there were okay. a German uh, country band, which was god-awful. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Well, I can't imagine that. A German country band. No. And uh, um, so... But, you know, they had the money, I had the experience, so we yeah. built the studio. And was that the 16-track studio that you built? It was first, for two weeks, it was eight tracks. Okay. And then some, Utah Weinholt uh, came in and said, hey, if it was 16 tracks, I could do my record here. So he flipped it over to 16 tracks yeah. after two weeks. and uh, But that's how it stayed till I left, actually. And I met uh, Don Dawkin in there. Right. There he, I met him there, and he invited me to America, and basically the rest is history. Yeah. Right. So you produced Dawkins' first record with yes. Electra, which went on to go gold. Your first record you produced went gold. That yes. Must have, that must have been very cool at the time yeah. for you. Actually, the first thing I did with Dawkins was a bunch of demos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And since the guys that basically owned the studio thought we did that, Without their knowledge, they released that record as a bootleg, hmm. and it went to number two in England. Oh wow! <laughs> that was the first thing, and yeah. this—I don't even want to listen to that. Oh really? <laughs> you know, that was my very, very, yeah. very first rock gig, and yeah, I would imagine though after doing maybe those demos and then doing that first docking record, that was kind of the the assurance, like yeah, I'm 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 doing what I should be doing here. Like instead of playing in a band, it was oh yeah, absolutely. you know, you got to see the the, the fruit of your labor, so to speak, and wow, I really should continue with this. You know? Yeah, and and uh, like I said, working with the gear was always a lot of fun. I always liked electronics and music and mm -hmm. somehow put that together. And being at Stram for that long, you know, I knew the insides of those machines and I could just sit down at an SSL, yeah. never saw one before, and within three hours I had it figured, figured out. Yeah. Wow. So I was pretty good at that stuff. Okay. And then now, obviously, everything went digital and... All my knowledge is out the window. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when you were producing the Dokken record, you were also learning engineering too, which yeah. kind of goes hand in hand. And, yeah. Uh, you know, learning about mic placement and preamps and all that stuff. Still and, do. Yeah. yeah. After 50 years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I yeah. still learn about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously, as, as you know, any musician knows or anyone who works in the studio knows, you can always learn new things and, you know, outdo yourself or, you know, a new piece of gear comes out, you're like, all right, well, now I have to learn that, you know. Yeah, not only that, but, you know, unfortunately, nowadays, a lot of, a lot of upcoming engineers, uh, they go through some kind of a school, mm -hmm. and they learn how to make beats with Pro Tools, mm -hmm. and, and that's about it. And if there's something, oh, we put a plug-in on it, yeah. you know, whereas they never go through the story where they have to learn where to put the mic which mic to put yeah you know and exactly that if you move move a mic a, a half an inch that'll change your sound way more than any plug-in you put oh on yeah there. absolutely you know? yeah it's, a, it's kind of a misunderstood art form i think 
it's not misunderstood. It's just not taught anymore. Right. Yeah. That's why I do workshops. Yeah. Right. You know? I want to talk about that a little later, yeah. too. You offer work production workshops, which yeah. is very, very cool. Yeah. So, but back on the timeline, so that Dokken record, I mean, that must have opened up many doors for you. Not really. Really? Because it was, it was done in Germany. It was redone about four times. Okay. You know, and then finally Elektra got a hold of it and it got released on Elektra and then it, it took years to go gold. Okay. I mean, it took lots of years to go gold. Gotcha. You know, but eventually... Uh, we did uh, Tooth and Nail. I mixed Tooth and Nail mm -hmm. together with Roy Thomas Baker. And then uh, I produced um, or co-produced uh, Under Lock and Key. And that record went big, yeah, right. really fast. Right. And that was a big point in my life. Was it was it? right before Metallica. Yeah. Okay, but and you would you would mixed uh, you started working with Motley Crue and Great White, sort of in the '80s, also. Yeah. Um, you mixed uh, Too Fast for Love. I in 1980, I, I came out here for the first time in '79, and uh, decided this is the place to be. Mm. You know, if you want to sell records, Germany had 60 million people, America had 350 million people. Right. Yeah. So. Where do you want to go? And I like the whole lifestyle and the whole attitude over here much better than I did in Germany. Still do. Yeah. And and uh, uh, so in the beginning 80s, I moved here, and then the economy was so bad that you know I couldn't I couldn't do anything. So I moved back to Germany and went on tour with Accept. Did their live sound yeah. together with Jews Priest. And uh, um, got into the whole stuff over there. But I kept going back to America. And when I was here in the 80s, uh, 1980, I met Mick Moss. Mm. And, and, you know, Mick, uh, I worked with him on his previous band before Motley Crue. And uh, um, when I came on vacation, he says, hey, you got to help me with my new band. It's called Motley Crue. Oh, wow. I go, it's called what? <laughs> <laughs> So I mixed the first Motley Crue record, yeah. and we had four days, you know, to mix the whole thing. It was all recorded, except for that one cowbell at the end of, uh, what is it, Live Wire, I think. Right. That was yeah. the one overdub you yeah. had to do. <laughs> and, and uh, um, yeah, mixed that record, and they got a deal with Elektra, and then it got remixed, you know, so there's only a thousand records out there from the Leather Records Version oh, from your from your your yeah. version. Wow, okay, yeah. interesting. And they later on used it on their best of the decade of decadence. They yeah. used it there and and some other stuff. Oh wow, okay. Mick just moved here too. So he oh really? Here oh, he too. did. So yeah, I just worked with him again. You oh, mentioned cool. that you, you Mick was kind of your way into that world. How did you meet yeah. him? Do you remember uh, how you Mick met Mick? Was like you know oh you got to do uh, you got to help me with this band mm -hmm. you know, and that turned into Motley Crue's first record. Wow. Uh, and obviously that got me a whole bunch of recognition. Right. Yeah. And especially with Electra. Is that where your yeah. gateway to Metallica was? A, was it through Electra? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. I, I think it was more Dokken because Dokken and Metallica had the same management. Okay. It uh, was okay. Q Prime management. Q Prime. And you know Dokken was just successful, and then uh, they decided that hey, you want to, you know, the labels and sometimes the uh, managements. They always wanted the band to be commercial, right? which course, is a yeah. bad it, word. They wanted know? to sell records. They wanted to sell records. They wanted to go on, you know. So if you do a record that sells, then they deem you to be a commercial producer, engineer, whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, with Metallica, it was the same thing. They wanted it to be more commercial, which obviously was not something the band wanted right. course, at yeah. all. Right. You know, the, quite the opposite. So... Uh, that's how that got together. Were you aware of Metallica before you got hired to do the record? I was aware that there was a Metallica and that there was a couple of records. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was not really un informed about it. Right. Sure, yeah. You were busy working. and Yeah. So you got the gig. Um, you know, What were your initial thoughts when you heard the tape? I mean... Well, was it a mess? Was it all pretty no, clean? No, Everything no. was recorded well. It was recorded well. very, very well. It was produced very, very well. And you mentioned before we started rolling that you hadn't even met Fleming until a few weeks no, ago. No. Wow. So uh, they just came in. You know, I talked to Cliff Bernstein, mm -hmm. and we talked about the, the uh, business stuff, business end of it. Mm -hmm. And then the band came in. They brought the tapes. You know, it was all analog tapes, which we transferred to digital. And uh, um, 
that was it. You know, I listened to the tapes. Yeah, it was a, a rock band in my years. Yeah, you right. know, they were a little bit heavier than the normal rock band. Quite a bit heavier when, as I found out later on, when I heard all the songs. Yeah. You know, but uh, um, I got the tapes, listened to it. Yeah, let's do it. So when you say you transfer, transfer them digitally, so back then, what, what were you transferring the tapes to? To 3M tape. Okay. okay. Digital tape. Yeah. It was a 32-track tape. Uh, yeah tape machine but it was a digital tape machine yeah how long did that process take or what's the usual just real time real time oh in yeah. real time okay. just let them run and you know how many reels of tape do you remember how uh, what, what would know. be the average for a record I don't know a, a roll of analog tape would fit like three songs okay uh, about 15 minutes at that speed so if you have 10 songs you know uh, and a digital tape is Double the length, thirty minutes. Yeah. Okay. So that would fit the double amount of uh, songs on there. So I think it was two two digital tapes that we had. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I remember there was some tapes missing. Actually, um, there obviously was a whole lot more tapes that stayed in Denmark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At Sweet Silence, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, some of them, I think there was one set that we needed. It had drums on it, you know, and we had the wrong drum tape that didn't fit to what we had or something like that. Okay. So we had to wait like a little bit of, till we could work, keep working, you know. Uh, and who, who communicate, like, because so, you said you didn't never really communicate with Fleming. Who would have been the liaison communicating with Fleming saying? Oh, that would be the band. That's the band. Yeah. So they were pretty involved. Yeah. Were, were all four of them there with the, for the present for the mixing? Yeah, or? Yes and no. Okay. Um, Cliff wasn't there most of the time. Uh, Kirk stayed kind of out of the mixing process, and and James and Lars were sitting right, left and right for me all the time. Really? Yeah. You know, and as soon as there was like a little light going on somewhere, what is that? Is that reverb? Turn it off. Right. So (laughs) reverb was kind of a kind of that was a bad word because you know they wanted everything totally in your face. Yeah. And you know. my word, way of working was exactly the opposite. If you listen to Dawkin, and the next one was White Lion, yeah, that was before and after Metallica. Uh, they're soaked in reverb, right? Right, you yeah. know, and and so they didn't want that, and so we found a way to in, get a little bit of my influence in there and a lot of their influence. I mean, they're the customers; they have to be happy. Sure, yeah. Well, and I know James and Lars. I mean, even to this day, are very hands-on with every. And they know exactly the what they want. Yes, right. yeah. exactly. Does that? Uh, do you prefer that, or does it make it easier or harder for you when an artist? Sometimes harder. Right. Sometimes harder. In, in their case, they knew what they wanted, and they were making sense. Right. In some cases, the musicians, you know, I want the Van Halen snare, I want a skid row bass, I want, you know, that kick drum, that Zeppelin kick drum, and so on and so on. They're asking stuff that is not possible <laughs> right. unless you get all those people to play on the record. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? So... Uh, Metallica wanted their record. They had a very clear direction, and also they had worked out something with Fleming, where they already had a direction on tape. Right. It was already given. Yeah. You know. So. Can you? So for people who may not know, so part of the mixing process is you bringing in things like delay and reverb. So the yeah. actual tracks you got were they just completely dry? Yes. And so it was all the reverb we hear is the reverb you ended up adding. There's none. Right, right. <laughs> Not on that. Well, there is a little. Uh, I wouldn't call it reverb. It's more like of a room type. Right. Yeah. So I put the whole band kind of in a room, but their big fear was that it moved away from your face. Right. Yeah. So if you put like a, a long reverb, obviously there's reverb on the vocals and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. You know, but. Uh, uh, not on drums. It was all more of a room situation, and definitely not on guitars. So you, that was that was basically something you added uh, on every instrument, basically like a, as you would like on a master track or something. It's one reverb, room reverb for the whole thing. Uh, it, it's different. Depends on the song. Yeah. Right. You know, if you if you talking about mixing in general, then it depends on the song. And and I have like one reverb unit uh, that is my main my main room sure and i sent most of it in there but then on vocals it will need a slightly different reverb slightly different decay different length mm-hmm. you know and then uh so everything gets sent to that yeah, box yeah. you know and then it gets mixed back into the mix in the end yeah so you had a fun you had to basically kind of find a balance between the guys and you of 
here's what I want it to sound like. And, and they're like, no, we want it totally dry in your face. No, it was never like that. It was okay. just like basically a principal thing that reverb was a bad word. Yeah. So don't use it yeah. at all. So all the reverbs were basically switched off. Yeah. And there was a, a couple of little things where we had like boxes that create room, like the Quantec. Yeah. You know, they create room. And I used some of that. Okay. But yeah. it's lot, a lot smaller than reverb is. Yeah. So if you have a room mic while you're recording the drums, that's about what that sounds like. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's kind of a more natural sound. Yeah. 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 Well, and I mean, it's, it's, I guess essentially that is still a type of reverb, but it didn't it didn't scare them to do that. No, it's uh, it's uh, not as much of an effect than like a natural environment. Yeah. You know, something uh, uh, people in in movies would do. To create the atmosphere that the actors, yeah, right, yeah. You know? I, I think if anything, sorry, to cut you off there, but um, a lot of times when I think you know some like a room uh, kind of reverb is used on the whole band in general, to me sometimes that adds more energy, you know, and, and you know makes it sound more in your face to me, like it's like it gives it that live kind of feel. Yes and no, you can mess up with reverb really quick. Yeah, for sure, you know. I like it. I like it uh, not to smear, but just to get the atmosphere. Yeah. You know, if as soon as you hear it, it's too loud. Right. You, you know? had a really cool quote that I liked where you talked about the psychology that goes into producing and mixing, mm -hmm. where you, like maybe for in, in this, can, in this uh, example, reverb's an evil word or whatever. It's a no-no. And you're sort of having to work with them and maybe comfort them about reverb. You said bringing in your own influence into it, working with artists. And I guess that's with producing and mixing. You're, sort of, you're almost like a psychologist, too, in some ways. You're definitely like a psychologist if you produce an album. Right. In that case, it was more like, hey, they're the clients. They have a certain idea about their, their record, what it should sound like, and how they want to present their music. So just do that. Yeah. You know? But just make it sound so it all fits together. It definitely was not the case of commercializing the band. Right. You know? Yeah. Absolutely not. And I'm glad because there was some some cases where I've done that and the band hated me afterwards. <laughs> and, but, the, but the label loved me because the band all of a sudden had yeah. a hit. Yeah. You do, you, do you have a preference over producing or mixing? Do you, how do you approach each? I like note? producing. I like to be there for from the first to the last note. You know, so I, um, I'm mixing stuff for other people, where it's just mixing, and uh, sometimes you have to deal with stuff that they don't didn't have any knowledge of. Right. You yeah. know, I've been doing it for a while. If I if I mix a record that I have produced, it takes me. A, a day for a song maximum because you know what went into all the tracks and and, and i put it. that on what i wanted on there yeah sometimes if i mix a record for somebody else it takes like three days a song sure you know and and uh, uh it's it's a lot of fixing rather than mixing yeah but so with Master Puppets, you said the tracks were really clean and well produced, so there wasn't it was a, all lot of, really good. Lot of, it not was a lot of all fixing to do. Very well prepared, especially because the band knew what they wanted. Yeah. So they worked with Fleming on on how it should be presented. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. And so I just basically the mixing was just gluing everything together. Sure. Did you ever well, have you any use some great glue? <laughs> did you ever have any aspirations to produce a Metallica record? Was that something you I thought would. of? But I mean, I saw Bob Rock producing it, and it took two years. Right. Yeah. You know, and and I, I'm not sure if I could go through that. Right. Sure. Know? That's uh, yeah, it's quite a commitment. <laughs> yeah. I I I mean, uh, Lars posted some pictures on Instagram with Fleming, him, and me, mm -hmm. and every comment is get those two guys to do your next record. Wow. Oh wow. And every comment. From from you know thousands of people, that would so, be cool. Yeah, would yeah. be cool. Yeah, I, I would, and and I also would do it with Fleming together. Do right. the same way with your Master Puppets. Yeah. Right. Well, and and you know, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, but the reason they're saying that Master Puppets is probably their most beloved record. Yeah. And a lot of people even consider it like the greatest metal record ever made. Yeah. yeah. Which is a. Oh, it a, went into the Library of Congress. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know? I mean, as I know earlier. Which to me, that's better than the Grammy. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> For sure. I know earlier you said that, you know, a lot of times, you know, you don't necessarily maybe reflect on certain records because it's just what you do and you still do mm. to this day. But, I mean, when someone says something like that, 
this is the greatest heavy metal record ever made is it, it, it's got to spark something a little bit like wow I can't believe I, I got to be a part of that moment in history mm-hmm. did you when you were mixing it um, did something feel special about it or different than anything you've done I know it sounded different, different it was different from the sound end to and, and how the whole thing was approached um, but if you're asking did anybody know it was going to be was going to be that monster of a record? I don't think it, we did. Yeah, really? you, you can't know? predict we those things. We knew it was but... good because you always think it's good. Sure. You know, otherwise you don't work with it. Right. And but we knew it was good, and and but that it became this massive of yeah a record. I mean, I it, didn't know. It, I mean, even to this day, you know, they're still playing the song "Master of Puppets" at shows in Battery and Sanitarium. All these songs and in elevators. Yeah, I mean, exactly. the the grocery store version yeah, exactly. of battery. <laughs> but it's crazy that I mean that wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was a hugely successful record, but not like the Black Album or even the Load and Reload stuff, where they were doing videos for MTV and stuff. They weren't a commercial it band, wasn't as commercial technically. Yeah. And it's and it, and to think thirty years later, they're still they're, they have to play some of these songs live. They can't not play Master of Puppets, so right. it's yeah. pretty crazy. Those, those that songs that, are staples. Yeah, that 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 that, that album w- was not at all uh, traditionally commercial. It, it, it was it was un, an underground smash in a way, you know. And mm-hmm. and to for those songs to achieve what they have over thirty years is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Well, and they stuck to it, you know. Right. That's what I said when we had that conversation in in Belgium. They stuck to it. They they went that path and that was their thing and and they followed that path you know to the day and i heard some stuff there that they were talking about that i didn't even know yeah about you know the right. making of it right you know? yeah well, what was it like seeing them again oh it's great yeah it was great and james has now short hair and i told right. oh you cut your hair yeah. it's been 30 years since i've seen him. i saw lars on a show here in nashville but not the other guys yeah you know and uh uh uh, so it was fun. It, yeah. f- it, it felt really cool. You yeah. Know? Yeah, it's, yeah. It seemed like you know very casual. I mean, you know, they, they're all kind of sitting behind their instruments and stuff to play examples of things. But yeah, it just seemed like a bunch of old friends sitting around and talking, especially with you and Fleming there. Yeah. Yeah. We the the, the clips that they've released online, uh, we've really enjoyed watching. You know, it was, it was cool to see you guys after not seeing each other for that long. You yeah. know, like kind of talk about this whole process of this record. Yeah. And did you and, catch and, a show while you were over there? No, I didn't, because that that was at a show, so to speak. You know, they ha- always have this uh, tuning room. Oh, that up. was in the arena, in the yeah, tuning room. It yeah, it was in there. And, and so uh, uh, then we left to get, get something to eat, and the traffic was so bad that we couldn't even make it back to the show. Oh, oh wow. wow. And there was two venues right next to each other, and they both were sold out. Crazy. Were massive venues. So the traffic was, I mean, you would go like 10 inches at a time. So you were originally planning on seeing the show? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had a lemon. Oh everything, man, you know. So and and then uh, uh, make it back. <laughs> oh man. Well, we've we, we've seen this tour. I mean, it's a little different over in Europe with the arena and the different setup. But I mean, th- those boys still bring it, man. We totally. We, uh, I saw um, Philadelphia. He saw St. Louis. Then we both went up to Detroit over the summer and saw, it, and it was such a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, those songs off Puppets still. I mean, they still play them very very well. well we're hoping they're going to do there's rumors that they're going to do an arena tour next year and they might come to bridgestone so that would be nice be yeah. fun to maybe catch that show so how did how did so you produ- you mix that record the record comes out how did that affect your career did that open doors did that that's change what things? i said at the at the meeting so that's exactly what Lars what Lars was there what did you think i go that was the week my career started uh-huh. <laughs> you know pretty much i without knowing it Right. You yeah. know, because it, it took a while and then it completely took off. But um, around that time, I had a whole bunch of really successful records. Yeah. You know, starting with uh, Under Lock and Key and then White Lion Pride mm-hmm. and then later on Skid Row's first album and, and so on. So Alice Cooper. Yeah. You know, so it was uh, it was a good time. Yeah. For yeah sure. Lots of work, but a uh, right. good time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some of those records you, uh, you mentioned, I mean, you know, I, I was, I would say, I don't know, 10, 11 years old when like that first Skid Row record came out, the self-titled right. record. And I didn't know anything about mixing or engineering, recording. I had just picked up a guitar for the first time. But I remember uh, two songs on that record were the first songs I ever learned on guitar, and I was obsessed with that record, you know? I mean, that, if I had the knowledge now back then, like, you know, of what the whole process was, you know, I'd probably have more of appreciation for the, the, the sonic qualities of that record. Mm-hmm. But now that we're older and listen to that stuff or slave to the grind, I mean, the... the, the 
the tones on that and, and the way you know what you got out of that, those guys is is, is really mind blowing to me. It yeah. sounds amazing. One of the, one of the first songs I ever learned on guitar was Black Cat, the, the Janet oh, Jackson yeah, song right. that Michael uh, you that yeah. you engineered it right or did you? No, did you... I remixed one version of it. Okay, there's I think seven or eight versions of it. Yeah, and uh, I was in the middle of the Extreme album. Right. And then Nuno replayed all the rhythm guitars on it. Cool. Uh, okay. So, yeah. How was it like working with Extreme? Good. Yeah. Good. I mean, Extreme was one of those bands, you know, when you work with a band, you get the demos, you listen to the demos, and then I make my own nasty remarks about <laughs> it in terms of arrangements sure. and stuff like that. We'll hear those later when we uh, stop. And oh, then, yeah. <laughs> and then you go in with the band, and then you go into pre-production. You know, you go over the songs, and Extreme... The songs were done. Yeah. They were done. We did not need any pre-production. We talked about a couple of little things, but from the producing end, it was it was pretty much done. You no, know? pretty so top-class musicians, yeah, too. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. yeah, but so are most of the people I work with. You yeah, know? true. <laughs> That's true. So uh, uh, that, that was the easy part for me on that record. But to me, it was a matter of like finding their sound mm -hmm. yeah. and getting a great mix out of it and sure. so on. Do you have a preference in production style in terms of do you like to get a lot of the basics live or do you like to stack tracks? Do you depends on the band. If the band can cut yeah. it or yeah. no, it depends on what the band's going to sound like. Right. You know, uh, um, the way I work normally is I do all the drums for all ten songs if the album has ten songs. Mm -hmm. Then I do all the bass because drums is always a big deal. There's like 24 microphones. Oh yeah, that whole room is all microphones, and you know nobody else is in there, and the musicians all sit in here. And once the drums are done, I have the whole band play along. Yeah. But once the drums are done, I go and finish one song at a time. Yeah. Okay. Because the guitars, with the vocals, keyboards, if there are any backing vocals, solos. Next song. Yeah. You know. I like that approach. Uh, a few of the bands I've been in and, and, and made records with, uh, we've done it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my bands, we did a couple records down at Dark Horse in Franklin. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the first times that we did that like song a day thing. It mm -hmm. was really cool. We didn't even do all the drums first. We just did drums, bass, guitar, vocals, all this stuff and the next day. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're hearing you're hearing a, a song take shape every single day. It's, it's right. I think it's a much more exciting way to record. Right. Well, you know, like I said, a lot of people, a lot of bands are from overseas, uh, so everybody needs a hotel and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, we try to get drums and bass out of the way, unless those guys are singing, mm -hmm. you know, they can go. They can go home, yeah. you know, so that saves a little bit of money, uh, and, and, and uh, we can move on to basically the next one yeah and also you stay in the mood of the song right you don't get you stay in the same headphone mix right you know yeah. and on the same monitor mix and also um by the time you're done after two days with the first song you have that song to listen to the rough mix for like a month yeah till the other ones are all done and you hear stuff you can you make know? notes and changes. And then, and then you get back to it and you go, okay, let's fix that vocal line. Let's put a little guitar lick here or something like that. Yeah. You know, and that, that opportunity you normally don't have, you hear the record when it's in the store and then yeah, it's yeah. too late. And do you typically engineer the records you produce these days? Yes. Cool. You prefer so, you prefer to do that? Not these days, always. Always. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, so that's obviously your preference is yeah. hands-on. Yeah, I, I sometimes have an assistant engineer, and, and she's very, very helpful. And, like, you know, when you do drums and you have all those mics out there, it's the running back and forth. Of course, yeah. You know, and, and then then some another person in there is, is very helpful. Yeah. Uh, mixing I do by myself. I don't need anybody around, you know. But engineering, uh, once you got the drums done, you got the band there, and, and the, you know... There's less and less engineering nowadays. Yeah, right. You know, and I'm the kind of guy that wants it correct on tape. Right, There's yeah. no such thing as fixing it in the mix. It's got to sound, when you pull all the faders up and the song is recorded, it's got to sound almost like the song that's going to be on the record. Yeah. That's definitely the, the philosophy I subscribe to. Do you... I guess some people might these days refer to that as kind of old school, you know, like... That's fine. They just want to fix yeah. it all like in the, in the box. Yeah, yeah totally. I do too. Yeah, I mean, I do the same thing just digitally at home in my home studio. It's like I, I'd much rather get everything recorded to how I want it to sound when it's done. Right. You know, maybe I'll add a little extra compression or something at the end, but I want to get all that stuff, whatever I'm doing, to go right into the computer right, or whatever. Right, and you build up on it. Yeah. 
You know, you get the drums sounding a certain way, then you fit the bass with the drums, you fit the guitars with the bass and the drums, and yeah. so on and so on. Yeah. And that's why I think pre-production is so important. Right. Because there you talk about what you think the song should sound like or what the record should sound like, you know, and, and, and you go for that. And um, it's hard to go through that process and halfway through go, oh, now we want it to sound like something else. Yeah. You know, which has happened to me before as oh, well. Sure, yeah. The label came and said, you know, and uh, that is really, really hard to do. Yeah. I, I, I was curious about um, we, earlier you talking about how different musicians have moved to Nashville and stuff like that, and because I know you, you you mixed the Megadeth record so far, so good, so what? Mm -hmm. um, did you have any kind of relationship with Dave post mixing that record? Because he now lives in Tennessee as well, which is why I, I asked. He lives here. Yeah. I, um, no. No. Okay. No. Those were times where um, some of the external influences were <laughs> were you know. Um, taken a lot of place and sure. actually i ran into dave after god it must have been in the late 90s maybe early 2000s here in nashville yeah when he was here recording a record and and i met him in a restaurant going hey dave and he just hey and just walked by i, I don't think he even recognized you know who you were <laughs> in the days you know minds were sometimes a little sure. foggy and yeah and i had different length hair and then you know yeah so uh um no i have not really talked to him yeah. ever since yeah i think he's down near franklin somewhere or yeah something, but um, like everybody yeah, and, totally. That's, and that's why I'm a, up here. And that's a record everyone loves. Is, is there one record from your career that you're most proud of, or maybe a few that come to mind if you think about, or even something recent you've done? No, that, that is, you know, I would say all of them. Right. Or 99.5%. Not, not that first not the Doc and Demo. Not the and Demo. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, that was me learning. Yeah. Right, you know, but obviously it came out so good that people liked it that it went yeah. to number two. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, the, I, I like them all. I do them all to the best of my knowledge. I give everything that I got on yeah. on every record. So, um, you know, I I won't let them out of here till I like it and till they like it. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, and also too, I mean, even if there's something you go back and, and re-listen to, you may you may not do that nowadays. But for what it was at the time for that band for that specific project, it's what it needed to be. Right. So. Yeah, that's that's how I think. Obviously, how you could say, it. yeah, I like them all. Like this. Mm -hmm. Well, and a, lot, a lot of this conversation has been almost like a class from you about production and engineering. But you actually offer these classes, right? You offer like a production workshop. Yes, I do what I call a workshop, production workshop, where we take a band and we record one song from beginning to end, from yeah. the demo stage through the arrangement, through like picking the room, picking microphones, and and you know. Uh, picking microphone positions and so on, so on, in very, very fine detail. Yeah. And then we go through all the way to mixing, sometimes even mastering. Okay. You know, even though I'm not a mastering engineer, you know, um, if I can and if the budget is there, I'd like to have somebody else master it. Yeah. You know, so I have another good pair of ears after mine. But uh, yeah, we do those classes and they, they last uh, between five and seven days. It is uh, depending on what it is you know and people come from all over the world how so often do you do them you whenever there's time in between yeah. yeah and you're doing them here at your studio i do it here at my studio uh or i do it at somebody else's studio yeah. i've done them in france vienna spain wow okay you know germany yeah and uh, uh so uh, then i go over there people get some get some uh, uh cool of people together and mm -hmm. you know sometimes it's schools yeah you know and uh um I also do what I call Ears for Hire, where you hire me to come to your studio. That's more of a one-on-one -on -one situation. Sure. Obviously, it's a little bit more expensive. Right. But then we use your studio with your gear and then do the same thing. We either record something or mix something okay. or whatever. So for our listeners out there who are musicians or who are interested in music production, it's such a cool option that you can come hang out with Michael Wagner. He'll produce a song. He'll come to your studio. Is it just on your website where they can find that info? Yeah. Is it michaelwagner.com? michaelwagner.com. The website is, I've neglected it for a long time, <laughs> but all that information is on there under yeah. production workshops. Um, you can at least give, find the 
basic idea about it. Yeah. Okay. Prices might have changed, and you know. Yeah. And if I do a workshop, I always put that on my website as well. You know wh- who the band is, and and you know, and sometimes what we do, uh, which might be interesting to people that are maybe not engineers, we do uh, see your band, your favorite band record. We did that with Kings X, oh, okay. where people came in for the first four days of the record. And they were not even not even engineers sometimes. There was, I think, one engineer, but we had six people there. Yeah. And they were just fans of the band, and they wanted to see how the band records. Yeah, you know, Obviously, done. they're paying a fee for that. Sure. But the, if I could have sat with a Beatles recording, Absolutely. I would have given my left arm for it. Oh, yeah, of you course. Know? Well, put me down for a vote for you and Fleming teaming up and offering <laughs> yeah. and offering this for Metallica's Clint next I'll, record. We'll, we'll be there for that one. I'll, yeah. I'll pay whatever it takes. I'll live here. I, I don't, I'm not sure if Metallica needs the money. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, they are a very fan-friendly band. Yeah. And, oh, you yeah. Know, it, they it, are. It might be something that they, Lars might find interesting for fans. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, the, and then do it in a, in a bigger way, you know? Maybe yeah. record the drums in auditorium or something like that right you know we have like a thousand people watching something yeah. like that too much reverb too, wait, wait, too much reverb. <laughs> reverb's evil yeah exactly yeah. um well i don't want to take up too much more of your time it's we okay. we uh we do a thing through our show called uh patrons where we have people who support the show financially they donate to the show it helps us pay for like the costs of the overhead for the whatever it is the domain and all that crap yeah yeah the hosting I, we put it out to them to see if they had any questions for you and they had a few uh, nothing too crazy. Let me find it. So Kevin Van Dam, he asked. Oh, not Kevin. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's Kevin. Oh, yeah. it's Kevin. <laughs> yeah. This is coming. <laughs> I thought this was a pretty interesting question. He says, "Are there any modern advances in music recording you would have liked to have used on puppets or any album in yes. that time?" Yes, the the use of computers as a recording medium. Right. You know, I I never I never liked analog tape. I, I and I know I'm going to get a lot of crap for that, but <laughs> analog tape is very easy to record you because it's hard to mess up with it. Yeah. But to me, it it always changes your sound. I've never got a kick drum back from analog tape the way it went in. Hmm. Never, not ah, once. Okay. And I've sat there with the biggest ears in the business, and we've tried different heads, different biasing, different tape, and it never came back the way it went in. Yeah. So by the time digital tape came around, I go, "That's me. Give me that." And that was the early 80s. Boss to the Wall already is on digital tape, Hmm. you know. And uh, so the event of having a computer that you can record into and it gives you back what you put in if you have the right equipment and you can work with it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, okay, well, there's one snare hit that, that wasn't hit quite right, and you put another snare hit there, and it sounds yeah. like, you know, you can do stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm not talking about drum aligning. I hate that. Yeah, right. Right. Or I'm not talking about auto-tune. I hate that, too. Yeah. You know, I always tell people, Nuendo doesn't do that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, uh, um, but, yeah, I would have loved to have this back then. And, and we tried it very, very, very early in the mid '80s, uh, on a little little Mac, yeah, you know, they came the first, but it was not anywhere close to using it professionally. Right. Wow. Okay. But what we have now, uh, yeah, and I don't even mind the plugins. I I rather use still all analog gear, and but the uh, uh, the computer itself and uh, tracking onto a computer. Yes, that would have been great. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you definitely embraced the digital world when that all that all switched over, not being a fan of analog tape. Yeah, being the first digital machine. Yeah. And Dama, back then in Germany, I think Frank Farian, who did Boney M, I don't know if, that's, uh, if you're aware of those, mm-hmm. big, 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 big band over there. And Frank was one of the top producers in Germany, and, and he had a 3M machine. And I saw oh, wow. it there, and I go, I want it. <laughs> well, it was then, pretty expensive back oh, in the... I mean, was yeah. it... Big 200, investment. $200,000, $300,000. Right? Wow. And and then Dirk Studios in Cologne, where we did a lot of the Accept stuff and, and, and other stuff, um, they bought those machines. Yeah. And, and, and that's when we had them. Another question uh, from the patron is, who was the most challenging member of Metallica to work with, if any of them? 
not any of them. Right. I mean, between James and Lars, they had their ideas and, and what they wanted to be. So there, to me, that was challenging right. because it was a different way of working than I normally did. But you know, I always accept that it's it's their record. Right. Yeah. So, At the end of the day, right? Yes. Yeah, the client, it's their yeah. record. So. Um, I think we all came out of there, you know, knowing, yeah, we did something really good. But there wasn't a case of, you know, Lars, the drummer, wanting the drums higher, James, the guitar all the player. Time. Yeah. All the time. All the time. That's not struggle. challenging. Yeah, that right. probably still yeah. happens on every record. For sure. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. But that's, uh, uh, that's not challenging. Just in the end, the balance for the song will win. You know, right. the, the song is the most important thing. And, and, uh, it's understandable that people want to hear their own instrument, you know, and and uh, yeah, that that conversation was going on all the time. Yeah. But that was not challenging to me. Right. Well, I, I mean, as a professional mixer, you've probably got some muscle for that. It's a common. Well, yeah, thing. you have the result. Right. You go look. If if we do this, then it will sound good. Right. If we do this, it'll not sound good. Yeah. You know, and and then everybody has to kind of see that. Right. Oh, they're, they're like, okay, we'll bring the drums up. Now you yeah. can hear how ridiculous it sounds when right. the drums right. are the loudest thing in the mix. Right. What, what was what was the total length of time you you spent with them mixing that record? I think it was just under two weeks. Oh, okay. I think, but I mean, it's been thirty years ago. Sure, so. sure, yeah. <laughs> and where was it mixed? Amigo Studios in North Hollywood. Okay. That was the old Warner Brothers studio where Van Halen did some of his stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, I uh, went there to. Produce a band called X. Mm-hmm. Remember oh, yeah. X? oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was Billy one of Zoom. the bands that the label wanted me to make commercial. And I did. And X hated it. But the, I had the hit. Yeah. You know? And, which which record? Uh, Ain't w- Love Grand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, um, so when I went there to look at studios, you know, uh, I, go, they, I looked at their studios that they had, decided on the studio to work in. And I go, if you had an SSL in here somewhere i'd even mix the record here hmm. so they put an ssl in and that was a tiny tiny room i mean not even half the size of this one yeah. Not even hmm. you know and the board filled up most of the room and then the outboard gear stacked to the ceiling <laughs> and uh that's where i mixed a lot of stuff yeah poison white lion i mixed a lot of stuff that darken yeah that kind and of became your home base in yeah, LA for mixing. It was yeah. for years, and then I moved over to uh, Scream Studios in in Studio City. Okay, and that was a nice big SSL and nice room, nice people, and it was just a, a cool studio. And that's where we did Ozzy and and a whole bunch of other yeah, I, a whole bunch of other. Warren was mixed there, and Skid Row was mixed there. So yeah, a whole bunch of other bands. Yeah. I gotta say, just because you mentioned Ozzy, that No More Tears record is sonically one of my favorite records of all time. It was till it got remastered. Uh, when did that happen? Uh, I don't know. What do you think in general but, about, about about three years? I think after it came out, and I put it in my CD player. I thought my CD player was broken. Oh wow! I hate that version of it. What do you think in general about remasters? I don't. It's, I don't it's like a big it. craze now. Yeah, leave it alone. I, yeah, I, because I agree. it's only money making. Right. You can Cause, write cause they can remastered, it. and then yeah. the fan goes, "Oh, it's a new type of that record. I right. need to buy it." Bullshit. Yeah. You know. I mean, just leave it alone. Yeah. It was meant to be like that at the time it was done. Right. You know, and everybody was happy with it when it was done that way. Right. You know, it's like, if you go back and auto-tune Elvis, that's about the same thing to me. <laughs> right. Know? Or Joe Cocker. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to hear Elvis auto-tuned. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh. Put, a, put a dubstep beat under it. Ugh. Yeah. So our last question before we say goodbye, we don't want to take up too much of your time, is from the same guy, Kevin Van Dam. He says, what is your favorite beer and what do you like on your pizza? Beer? Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm the only German that doesn't drink beer or eat sauerkraut. But really? I do have a sense of humor. That's why I had to leave Germany. I think I had four beers in my whole life. Wow. I wouldn't know how to answer, answer that. You're not German. Question. <laughs> and uh, pizza, I rarely... Well, now I'm going to get stoned again. Uh, I like the pineapple pizza. Oh, like <laughs> Hawaiian. Hawaiian. Hawaiian, yeah. Hawaiian flavor. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Yeah. But I was I wondering why you. Were, I don't eat pizza that often. I was so. wondering why you've been wearing a Hawaiian lay this whole time. We've been yeah, doing this interview, yeah, dressing right. Hawaiian. He has a grass skirt on. You can't. You guys can't <laughs> yeah, see right, it. Right. We're going to be doing the limbo <laughs> later. Well, Michael, and thank a you. Coconut bra. Thank yeah. you. 
You look dynamite in it, by the way. We'll be putting that on Instagram. Man, thank you so much for your time. Sure. We really yeah, we appreciate yeah, it. we do. Sure. Man. This is, and, and again, your studio is, is beautiful. and uh, Yeah, there's just so, many, it's just so much eye candy around here. And uh, <laughs> we can't wait to you know, hear what you keep working on you know, from this yeah. day forward. Yeah. And with that, we'll say peace. Peace, everybody. Adios. Well, you heard it, folks. You heard it there first. What a sweetheart. He, das sweetheart, as they say in Germany. Nine. Nine. <laughs> um, yeah, gosh. Well, first we of all. We forgot to ask him if he was in the band Rammstein. I think he is. He's, he's currently an active member of. I think Rammstein. anyone that is from Germany oh, has me, it's been. R- Rammstein. Rammstein. <laughs> um, well, first of all, to, Ma- to Michael, thank you so much for opening up your studio to us, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to accommodate our little podcast we have going here and uh, just for being willing to just share stories with us. And we cannot thank you enough. And I want to encourage you all to go to his website and check out those production workshops that he does. Um, it's a really cool opportunity to, mm-hmm. to learn from this dude. This dude knows what he's talking about. Oh, yeah. I was really impressed with his his ethic and his philosophy about making records and getting sounds. Mm-hmm. And he was a really impressive guy all around. He's a, he's a very, he's a very, uh, he's very committed to his craft. I mean, he's obviously done it for a long time and he shows no signs of stopping. I mean, like he told us in the interview, he's booked what through May book through May. Yeah. And I mean, he's been doing this for a long time. It's easy for people in this industry to get burnt out at a certain age. And he seems just excited to work on a local band as he d- did Metallica, as he did, you know, white lion, whoever. Yeah. We were really lucky that he he gave us some of his time. So uh, write in to us and let us know what you thought about the interview with Michael. Um, uh, metal up your podcast show at gmail.com. Don't forget to go check out the iTunes reviews. If you want to get in on this contest, we're going to be drawing these names regardless. There's no reason your name should not be in that queue. Right. Um, I don't know what the gifts are going to be in January and February, but they're going to be, they're going to be cool and different every month. Yeah. It might even be me and Clint fly to your house and cook you dinner. <laughs> With Michael Wagner, with Michael Wagner, we're gonna yeah we're we're gonna make bratwurst and for an extra ten grand we'll just bring Michael with us. Yeah, exactly. He'll help you uh, EQ your your USB microphone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks for being on the ride with us. I think yeah. we're gonna say you know until next week. I think we're just gonna go ahead and say peace. Adios. <laughs> Advice or what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs> <laughs>